If you have your Bible, you can open up to Titus 3. But we've been uh, working our way through this book. Last week, Kevin talked to us about some final reminders in the book that Paul was passing on to Titus and uh, the followers there and uh, challenging the people in Crete to live a particular way. And uh, now we're looking at just the, the very end, the farewell address, the kind of final greeting that happens at the end of the book. And uh, often it's a section that it's easy to just kind of glance over. I mean, if you're reading the book, you, you kind of see the intro, like, Paul, I'm an apostle, this is who I am, I'm writing to Titus and the people, great, you skip that, jump into chapter 1, you hit a lot of the, I mean, we talked about sound doctrine, we talked about faith, discipleship, talked about the importance of being involved in good works, of, of sharing the gospel, of making sure that we understand that our righteousness is not achieved by us, but by God. I mean, there are so many things that we covered in this book, and we get to the end, and it's easy for us to kind of just gloss over the last couple of verses, because they are a greeting, or a statement, a kind of a, the end of it before he signs the letter. But uh, really, there's two main ideas in this last section that are significant. We're going to look at both of them today. The first one is the idea of teamwork or the significance of others. And then the other idea is one of devotion, specifically a devotion to good works. And so with those two kind of general ideas or themes in the background, we're going to look at Titus 3, verses 12 through 15. You can follow along with me. It says, When I send Artemis or Titicus to you, do your best to come to me. Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So this first idea I want to focus in on is the idea of teamwork and the significance of others. I mean, if you're at all a sports fan, this is one of those uh, amazing moments in the sports calendar where we get to enjoy and experience March Madness. For some of us, last night was depressing. Um, but outside of that, it's, a, it's an amazing time to watch teamwork uh, displayed. In fact, we, we rally around a team, we cheer for a team, we get excited and uh, the more the team is focused on the goal, the more they work together, uh, they progress in the tournament, they become uh, better simply because of teamwork. But the more that I've been watching the games, or the more that I think about teams in general, there is a weird thing in our society where we always want to pick one person from out of the team and highlight them above the rest. So like, we always look for the MVP, I mean, the whole team could have the most incredible game, but there's got to be someone that was the best. We always need a hero to the story, it seems. We always have to find this guy or girl and go, man, they are the reason the team works. But the more I've been thinking about that concept, the more I've been watching these teams play and seeing certain leaders rise to the top, what's interesting is that any time an award is given almost in any segment of life, there's always a period of time for the individual to communicate the significance of the team. That he or she would never be in the place they are 
without the rest of the team. And it's a principle that's very true in life. But you'll notice it. You notice it in sports. What happens in sports is the athlete will stand up in front of everybody else, and he or she will communicate, you know, I'm so thankful for this huge trophy that I will put on a shelf someday. And uh, the reason I'm thankful is not because of what I was able to accomplish by myself, but then they will list, you know, is I'm thankful for my coach, I'm thankful for my teammates, thankful for the trainers or the equipment managers, I'm thankful for my mom and dad. Sometimes even Jesus gets props in there, like thanks to him for giving me the ability. But we list all of these people that the individual is recognizing their accomplishment is only possible because of the team. You'll see it also in other things, like the Oscars. They start off by saying, hey, I'd like to thank the Academy. And then they begin listing for the next like five minutes. The music's playing in the background. People are like, get off the stage. And while that's all happening, they're listing person after person. The producer, the director, the third makeup artist on the left side. I mean, like, it doesn't matter who it is. They just keep listing person after person. You, you see it in other things like movie credits. I mean, a lot of those we sometimes skip. We get to the end of the movie, the credits start to roll, and we're just like, oh, we turn it off. But that is a whole list of individuals, people that contributed to the movie, and the movie would not be possible without the effort of all of the people. Another one is book acknowledgments. I even uh, this week grabbed some books off my shelf, really quick flip to the front, and almost every one of them, if not every one, had a statement at the beginning. I'd like to thank my wife, or I'd like to thank the team that I work with, or I'd like to thank my editor, or I'd like to thank... And there's this list of people where they acknowledge that it isn't my ability to write this book, but it would not have been possible without this list of people. While I was like doing some research, I came across uh, an interesting acknowledgement page in a book. It's the only crazy acknowledgement page I've ever seen. It goes something like this. I'll show you. Olin Shrivers makes this statement. Who should I thank? This is literally in his book. My so-called colleagues who laugh at me behind my back all the while becoming famous on my work. My worthless graduate students whose computer skills appear to be limited to downloading bitmaps off of net news. Uh, my parents who are still waiting for me to quit fooling around with computers, go to med school, and become a radiologist. My department chairman a manager who gives one new insight into and sympathy for disgruntled postal workers. He then goes on to list a few more things, and then at the end he says, if I thought anyone cared, if I thought anyone would even be reading this, I'd probably make an effort to keep up appearances until the last possible moment. But no one does, and no one will, so I can pretty much say exactly what I think. Oh, yes, the acknowledgments, I think not. I did it. I did it all by myself. <laughs> he, uh, it's a computer software book, and uh, he's a teacher, and he, he, writes, he writes this as his kind of acknowledgement page. Besides this individual who writes this, most of the time people will acknowledge that teamwork is vital to accomplishing something. That what we're able to accomplish by ourselves pales in comparison to what we would be able to accomplish as a team. And it's interesting because the Bible, if you begin to think about it, is full of teams. 
full of them. I mean, right from the very beginning, the Trinity is the first team that ever was and ever will be. It's a group of three that work together in the most amazing relationship for the greater good of everyone. You have other examples of the Old Testament, uh, the tribes of Israel. You have examples of teams coming together like Jesus and the Twelve. And then you have Paul, the writer here. And Paul is always working in team. He's always in unity with others. In fact, you see it all throughout the New Testament. I wrote down a few, and they should be up on the screen. He lists in uh, Philippians, he's writing to Timothy, a servant of Christ Jesus. He talks about some fellow workers, and he lists those in Philemon. Uh, Again, he lists Timothy in Romans 16. Romans 16 is a section, verses like 3 through 16, I believe. He lists 20 or 30 individuals that he wants to greet or thank or talk about their contribution to his ministry. Uh, He talks about Titus in 2 Corinthians, that he's a partner and that he works with him. Priscilla and Aquila, who are famous, many people know them. Epaphras, a servant of Christ Jesus. Urbanus, a fellow worker in Christ's service. The list goes on and on. I mean, Acts 20, 1 through 4 is a list of another 10 or 12 people that he just rattles off. You know, you need to thank this person and this individual and that individual for all of their contribution to gospel ministry. What we're able to accomplish, what we're a part of, is only possible because of a group of people. And Paul understood that team was important. In fact, he starts off this final section, and the whole initial emphasis is on team. And he begins to list a group of individuals. The first one is Artemis, and he says this about him. Um, He said that he's going to come replace Titus. We don't know much about him. We know that this is the only reference in Scripture to this individual. Some um, historians believe he became the Bishop of Lystra. But there's not much known about him. But we do know this, that Paul considered this man a worthy replacement for Titus. In fact, he's saying, Titus, I'd love for you to come meet me and spend the winter with me. And this man will pick up where you left off. I mean, Titus has been charged throughout this whole book to teach sound doctrine, to, to uh, help disciple the older men and the older women who are supposed to then disciple the rest of the followers of Christ. He begins to talk about uh, how you're supposed to appoint elders. I mean, there's a lot of responsibility. We talked about how there's about 100 cities um, in Crete at the time. And so he's traveling from section to section. And Paul is saying that this individual is worthy to replace you. So he acknowledges that his team members are quite significant and important. He moves to the next one, Titicus, and he makes this statement um, in Acts 20, in Ephesians 6, and in Colossians 4. He brings him up several times. But in Colossians 4, he describes him this way, quote, He is a beloved brother, a fellow minister, or a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. He describes him in three ways. That this is a faithful man of God. That he's, he's committed to serving the church. And that he is loved by me, is what Paul is saying. I mean, that's a pretty cool description. And he says, if Artemis can't come, then, then he will come and he will replace. And he'll begin to do the work of the ministry here and pick up where you left off. He then lists a few other guys. Zenos the lawyer. Again, uh, this is the only reference in Scripture to him. 
But what's interesting about Zenos is he's counted worthy of actually bringing the letter to Titus. So he kind of played the part of the Pony Express. And, and Paul gives him the letter and trusts this letter that's going to go to Titus and declare truth that they need to begin to follow. And he gives it to Zenos. And then the last one mentioned, or the second to last one mentioned, is Apollos. He's mentioned one other time in Scripture in Acts 18 where it says this of him, pretty cool description, that he was a great orator, that he was mighty in the Scriptures, and that he was fervent in spirit. Man, what a description. To be able to be described that way as someone who can communicate the truth that's mighty in the Word of God, meaning he knew the Word of God inside and out, and that he was fervent in spirit. And then Paul lists one other group, and he says this, all who are with me. So Paul is not only acknowledging four individuals that are going and doing a particular task at the time, but he's also acknowledging that there is a community of people that he is surrounded with that are being sent out. That there's this team, this network of people, that are all about the same task, all about the same goal, all wanting the same thing to happen, and that is the spread of the gospel, the start of the church, the declaration of Christ as Lord, and all of those things he's describing in relation to team. Now I know that many of us have probably been able to be a part of teams before. And um, I started thinking through some of the teams that I've been a part of. Whether it's the, the team here at New Community of small group leaders and staff members and just an amazing group of people that I get to work with on a daily basis. Or whether it's a group, I started thinking of this uh, group of guys and girls that I worked with for about 11 years. Uh, part of a youth ministry and just some of the most incredibly passionate followers of Jesus who wanted nothing more than to see young men and women grow up to serve God around the world. I thought of two particular teams that I was a part of that kind of just stuck out to me as I was putting this together. The first one, I don't know if you've seen this picture before, um, but this is a group of four crazy college guys that um, were on a ministry team together. And uh, if you're looking for a bald guy, that's me before I became bald on the far left, okay? Uh, I actually did have hair. And um, I was a sophomore in college at the time. And uh, I got placed on this ministry team with three other individuals. And we went from church to church, Christian camp to Christian camp for 12 weeks. I mean, we were on the job basically 24-7. And uh, some of the most amazing things happened. We were so involved uh, in each other's lives and in ministry, and this was an incredible team. Uh, next to me, Buddy, uh, one with darker hair, he um, is actually spent the last 10 years in Japan serving uh, with military youth there, and then just moved him and his whole family to Thailand to start a school and to uh, rescue girls from sex trafficking. And so he's pouring his life into that. Uh, Jeff, who's next to him in the middle of the picture, uh, he and I worked together for about 12 years, and uh, now he just recently moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, and he is getting ready to uh, plant and lead a church in the Indianapolis area. And then John, at the end, has spent over the last eight years in Brazil planting churches and, uh, and raising up the next generation of Brazilian leaders. And 
I mean, this is a team that, man, changed my life being a part of this group. And it was a group that understood that anything we could accomplish by ourselves paled in comparison to what we could accomplish together. Let me show you another picture. This is a little teeny soccer team. Um, for the last, uh, I don't know how many years of my life now, I've been coaching either kids soccer or varsity high school soccer. And this group of guys was, um, there was a larger group. There was a, a whole team that got divided into two. And uh, we, I remember this one time we went to this tournament. And uh, it was an indoor tournament. And these guys were all like seven or eight years old. And we get to this tournament and... Um, we divided the team, and we divided it really into an A team and a B team, which normally when we go to tournaments, we try to divide the teams pretty evenly, but this particular tournament, uh, we wanted to win. So we created a B team, right, which was horrible. And, uh, but I was excited because I wanted to coach the B team. And so we had this little group of guys that kind of knew that they weren't given the better players, and, and they, I mean, they were very great about it, and uh, the parents were great about it. And we enter this tournament, and there's really supposed to be no chance for us to win at all. And there's like four or five games you play to get into the part where you begin single elimination. And we, we did well enough to get into that part. Well, it comes to the first game, and we beat the team, and we're just riding the momentum. I mean, this team is just loving the moment. We get to the semifinals. Guess who we face? The A team. Okay? Yeah. And, uh, and we just stomped them. I mean, it was, it was so amazing. I mean, the, the look on these kids' faces as they're coming off the field, they're like, can you believe it? I mean, like, they were so, so thrilled. We get to the final, and we are playing the best team in the whole tournament, and we get, there's like, 20 seconds left in the game. It's tied. We get fouled, and we're like 20 yards out. And uh, this little kid, Luke, walks up to the ball, and I'm like, go for it, Luke. I mean, just, just rifle it. And he does. Upper corner. We celebrate. Parents, everyone's running on the field. I mean, it was the most amazing moment. I mean, it's so crazy because Luke even, like six months ago on Facebook, he's like, I was just daydreaming today about our tournament when I was seven. Most amazing moment of my life, you know. <laughs> he, he still talks about this time where, I mean, it, just crazy stuff happened, and it happened because of team. It happened because we joined together in a unique way that, that was only possible because the, the sum of the parts is great, that together we come and we can accomplish far more. So let me ask you a question, and I want you to discuss with some people around you just for a minute or so. What, what's, why is team so important as it relates to the emphasis in Titus? In Titus, we listed several things, sound doctrine, discipleship, a focus on spreading the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom. You start seeing all those things line themselves out in Titus. Why is team so important in the book of Titus? Let's talk about it for a minute or so with some people around you, and then I want to hear your answers. Why in this context is team so important? All right? I'll give you a minute to talk, and then we'll refocus up front. 
All right, as it relates to the context of Titus, and it relates to gospel ministry and us moving forward with faith, how, how does team play into that? What is the significance of team? Talk to me about team. Why is team important in this context? Okay, There's, everyone has different abilities. There's certain things that people bring to the plate. Uh, I mean, that's what the way the body of Christ is described. That there are certain people that function as arms and other people that function as legs and that, that in that particular picture that each of us is needed to create a well-functioning, healthy body. Good. How else? Yeah. I mean, specifically in uh, Titus 2, there's this, this understanding that one generation is passing on the faith to the next generation and they're teaming together to pass it on to the next generation. And there's this progression that happens when we function well as teams. What else do you see? Yeah, a greater sphere of influence for a team than for an individual. I mean, it amazes me how often we try to accomplish things for God individually rather than corporately. I'll come back to that in a moment. That's great. Yeah. It's countercultural. Yeah, I mean, from, a, from an outsider's perspective, Seeing a team function well as a family, as a community, is uh, something that will raise um, questions, which is a great thing. Good. Any other thoughts? And I'm sure you're, you could be thinking of other things like accountability and the importance of working together, and the list goes on and on. But one word that kind of uh, struck me is the idea that we are interdependent. We are interdependent. As much as we try in our society to be isolated, to be individualized, there is an understanding in team that interdependency, the relationship with one another, the fact that we need to and should lean on one another, helps us accomplish so much more. I mean, there are, are uh, numerous illustrations of that in the Bible. One that comes to mind uh, to me is the story where the four men pick up the mat of the crippled man, walk to this gathering where Jesus is, realize they can't get in, They climb up on the roof, rip open the roof, lower the man down, and it says that because of his faith, no, it says because of their faith, he's healed. He comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus. He's also healed physically because of their faith, the four guys on the roof. What struck me about that passage is so often we think, man, I've got to reach my neighbor, I've got to reach my friend, and if I begin to build that relationship with them, they might come to know Jesus. And I am convinced that happens best in communities. Invite them into the community. I don't think that lame man would have been able to walk. I don't think he would have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus if one guy had a rope and was dragging the mat. It's not going to happen. He's not going to get a front row seat with Jesus because one person is taking up the cause. But when we together become interdependent, we lock arms together, I'm convinced that we can change cities. I'm convinced we can change the world. Because it's the partnership that makes it possible. So Paul focuses first on this idea of partnership, and then he moves to this idea of devotion. Devotion to good works. Good works is brought up over and over in the book of Titus. If you look at this quick list, in uh, 2.7 it says we're to model good works. In 2.14 that we're to have a zeal or be zealous for good works. In 3.1 that each of us should be ready for every good work. 
3.8. We have to be careful to maintain. And then the one we're looking at today, 3.14, is our people must learn to devote themselves to good works. Every time I read that phrase, every time I think of that phrase, it's one that's filled with, with challenge, but it's also one that's filled with hope. I really think of it in three main ways. The first one is this idea that each of us is to be devoted. Devoted is the idea of having an affection for something, to have an attachment for something. Um, my daughter right now, Evie, is like one and a half, and she is more than attached to this blanket. I mean, wherever she is, the blanket has to be there. And if at some point it's not, she's like looking around, she's talking to us going, blanket, blanket, anytime here, need it, you know. She's attached. And what Paul is saying in this text is be attached to good works. Be attached, be affectionate, desirous, wanting good works to happen. But he says that we have to learn to be devoted to good works. This is the encouraging part or the hopeful part because it's something that is learned. It's not something that you automatically have, but it's something that's gradual. It's a growth. There's a process, a journey that takes place. To me, that's hopeful. To me, it's, it's not this idea that I trust Christ and immediately I have this overwhelming desire, passion to always do good works. But rather, it's as God it continues to make me more like Jesus Christ. I become more and more passionate, more and more devoted to having my life be about good works. And then this last idea in this verse is that the devotion is learned through practice. The literal verb for learn in this is to learn not by reading books, not by sitting in lectures, not by being in a classroom. The verb for learn in this text is to learn by practice, to learn by experience. So what Paul is saying is, it's a novel idea here, that we become more devoted to good works when we do good works. Simple as that. We become more devoted to good works as we do good works. I mean, this is a concept that is not really new to us. It's in virtually every area of life. If we become... If we begin to pray, we become more devoted to praying. It happens. If we are committed to give of our resources for the kingdom, it's amazing how many people that take that step come back to me and say, guess what? I'm devoted to giving now. Because I've seen God do amazing things. Or, Someone who steps out in obedience and says, now I am devoted to this idea of stepping out in faith. The list can go on and on. I mean, some of us become devoted to cooking by simply cooking. Some of us become devoted to sports by engaging more in that sport. Paul is saying here that we can develop this attachment to good works simply by doing good works. Let me challenge you with this. If you're sitting on the sideline, kind of waiting to read another book to figure out how better to reach your neighbor, put the book down and go hang out with your neighbor. If, if you're kind of going, well, you know, at some point I kind of want to serve, but that, 
that might be down the road, or maybe God's calling me into missions, and you know, so let's put together a 10-year plan. If, if you are sensing a call to do something, do it. Practice it. And the way you become more devoted to it is by doing it. Sometimes we look at individuals and we go, oh my goodness, look at all they're doing for God, or look at how, how they're being used, and we go, man, there must be some secret formula. And the formula is this, try it and fail and keep trying, and God will use your feeble attempts to and do amazing things simply because you tried. And then you developed the devotion, and God uses that to change the world. So let me challenge you, as Paul did. We must learn to be devoted to good works so that we will not be unfruitful, as the text says. So this whole greed, in the end, the part we often overlook, really, has two main points. The first one is that together we will accomplish far more if we work together. That we ha- It has to be about team. It has to be about us accomplishing kingdom purposes together. And then the last idea is this, that we must be devoted to good works. And that comes by practicing them, by doing them, by not being afraid, but by stepping out, taking a swing, trying it, and seeing God do amazing things. Let me pray, and then we are going to close with a, a poem written, um, kind of wrapping up the book of Titus. All right? Let me pray.